welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. And um, this is the afternoon uh, Doctor's Opinions panel. Um, uh, and, and first off, I want to make an amends to the, um, uh, the panel up here um, for our audio setup. Um, when we envisioned this panel, we didn't realize the, the technical aspect and therefore didn't give Lee the necessary heads up to have a more convenient uh, microphone arrangement. So um, each of the panel members will need to come up to the microphone. We can't pass it around because the recording mic is, is on the stand and then this is the PA. So, um, uh, um, so our amends for that. And I'd like to uh, uh, read a reading from Language of the Heart to kind of uh, set the tone for this talk. This is a letter that Dr. Carl Jung wrote to Bill Wilson on January the 30th of 1961, just shortly before he died, um, in response to uh, a letter that uh, Bill wrote to Carl Jung. Um, Dear Mr. W., your letter has been very welcome indeed. Uh, I had no news from Roland H. anymore and often wondered what has been his fate. Our conversation, which he has adequately reported to you, has an aspect of which he did not know. The reason I could not tell him everything was that those days I had to be exceedingly careful of what I had said. I had found out that I was misunderstood in every possible way. Thus, I was careful when I talked to Roland H., but what I really thought about was the result of many experiences with men of his kind. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness expressed in medieval language, the union with God. How could one formulate such an insight in a language that is not misunderstood in our days? The only right and legitimate way to such an experience is that it happens to you in reality and it can only happen to you when you walk on a path which leads you to higher understanding. You might be led to that goal by an act of grace or through a personal and honest contact with friends or through a higher education of the mind beyond the confines of mere rationalism. I see from your letter that Roland H. has chosen the second way, which under the circumstances was obviously the best one. I am strongly convinced that the evil principle prevailing in this world leads the unrecognized spiritual need into perdition if it is not counteracted either by real religious insight or by the protective wall of human community. An ordinary man, not protected by an action from above and isolated in society, cannot resist the power of evil, which is called very aptly the devil. But the use of such words 
arouses so many mistakes that one can only keep aloof from them as much as possible. These are the reasons why I could not give a full and sufficient explanation to Roland H. But I am risking it with you because I conclude from your very decent and honest letter that you have acquired a point of view above the misleading platitudes one usually hears about alcoholism. You see, alcohol in Latin is spiritus, and you use the same word for the highest religious experience as well as the most depraving poison. The helpful formula, therefore, is spiritus contra spiritum. Thank you again for your kind letter. I remain yours sincerely, Carl Gustav Jung. Um, what I'd like to uh, ask uh, the panel to do, um, I've got a, a series of general questions. Um, and since we have this format, um, uh, having to get up to the microphone, um, I'd like to kind of let each member get up as few times as possible. So we're going to have a, a, an initial portion that's mostly composed of generally address, letting each panel member address these questions. And then we'll have a second portion after a break, in which case we'll address the questions that you've uh, dropped in the ask it basket. Um, so um, if each of you would in turn uh, give a brief uh, CV of your uh, professional history and your uh, experience with um, uh, treatment of addiction. Um, the questions that, that I have um, are general questions. Is sexual addiction a disease? What is the evidence from your personal experience, scientific, medical, and psychological evidence for sexual addiction being a disease? What is the state of sex addiction treatment today? What is the damage caused by sexual addiction? And how are we faring in the battle against the disease? Um, regarding the DSM-5, uh, which is a uh, diagnostic manual used in psychiatry, um, that is soon to come out. Um, we hope sexual addiction will be recognized in a, as a disease in that. It is not yet. How would the formal recognition of sexual addiction as a disease affect the uh, clinical treatment of sexual addiction? And how would this affect SA as a whole? And finally, how can we best prepare ourselves as individuals and as a fellowship for the future? I'd like, to, I'd rather go second, third, or fourth. Okay. I just need to relax a minute. Okay. <laughs> Volunteers to go first. Is this my one time to talk? Um, or do I, will I rotate back through? Y'all, yes. Y'all will have many times. Uh, my name is Jeff Seat. And I'm a therapist here in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, uh, hello. <laughs> um, you just want me to do my CV here or, or respond to some of those questions? Right uh, now? If briefly, just let them know who you are. Oh. Um, I'm a sexaholic. And I have been in recovery for a lot of years. And um, one of my earliest memories of SA was meeting Harvey and Nancy in Oklahoma City in 19, 1984. And um, 
just have a lot of gratitude for this fellowship and I have a very serious sexual addiction that I recover from, live with one day at a time and uh, have a lot of tools that I use every day and very, very grateful. It's just by far and away the most significant part of my life. Also, I have a master's degree in theology and I'm a, a licensed ordained minister. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology and I have a PhD in counseling psychology. I'm a certified addiction specialist and a certified sex addiction therapist. And I've been in practice about 19, 20 years here in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, here's, here's what I know. In my own journey, can, can I just talk a minute? In, in April of 1971, uh, in, in my family growing up, uh, my father would, would beat me. And I didn't know that until I went to treatment. I thought we had a wonderful, and we do, we did, I have a wonderful Christian family. And I grew up in a home that was very loving and nurturing, and, and I just knew I, something was wrong with me. I had something going in my fantasies about sex and something in my behavior that was compulsive. And I didn't know it had anything to do with anybody around me or anything. I just knew I was sick. Something was wrong with me. It took me about 10 years in therapy and 12-step meetings to sober up enough to begin to to begin to put some pieces together. And one thing I remembered somewhere along the way years ago was that in April of 1971, my father was beating me, as I called it then, spanking. And I remember how I used to run around the room and scream and in terror and pain. And uh, my dad would close the door and It'd just be he and I in there, and he was, of course, very aggressive with me with a belt. But in April of 1971, I remember laying down on the bed. I had a red bedspread and had what I called, still call these little rivulets in them. And I remember learning to disassociate. And I remember the lampshade in my bedroom as a child had cowboys with lassos around the campfire and horses. And so, as my dad would hold me down on the bed and with full chest and belt uh, hit me, uh, I learned I could disassociate into those rivulets on that bedspread and then look into that lampshade and go there. And I stopped crying that day. I stopped crying in April of 1971, and it was in that same month that I started to masturbate. And what I know today is that um, relationships became threatening to me. Relationships became a time for me to go numb. And it was in my addiction that I learned to have my feelings. So my feelings came out my penis for about 20 years. 
And I never cried another tear. I got married and uh, was a pastor and uh, had many experiences of being with many people who were sad and suffering. And I never cried. And my wife frequently would ask, are your tear ducts stopped up? Why do you not cry? And I said, I don't know. I know this is a sad occasion, but I don't know. But I was compulsive in my sexaholism. And it allowed me to process my feelings. But when I got into relationship, I would go numb. And, and I wouldn't know what I felt. In my addiction, I knew what I felt. And I could be passionate and creative and, and expressive. And, and yet, in my relational life, my conscious life, I was disassociated. I had a, a false self-projected which I called day codependency. And relationships were terrifying to me. So it took me a bunch of years to learn how to heal that. A lot. Of course, a huge part of that was going to SA, learning to get sober, working the steps, all the processes uh, that our program offers. These conferences went to many, many of these for years all over the country. And I'm just so grateful to Roy Kay and people like Harvey and Nancy and so many others, Jess and others, um, for the years of investment in our program here. Also, it was very important for me to get into therapy and be in treatment and figure out ways to identify the trauma that had affected me. Um, over the course of those years, I've learned a few things too. And Mark Schwartz and Pat Carnes and a few other people have really helped me learn about what I know today are these temporal lobe deficits in the brain that really are impairments, have been impairments in my life. Temporal lobes are where the emotions and sensations are processed for us human beings. And in, uh, in sexaholics, these temporal lobes are are quiescent or less than active compared especially to the base of the brain. And the base of the brain is where I was operating in my life for many, many years, which is about survival. And I was a trauma survivor, so I could survive, but I couldn't feel. My brain was impaired. And in 1996, I, invited, I, I rented this facility and in, invited Pat Carnes to Nashville. He did a three-day workshop. Pat and I were having breakfast here in one of these little restaurants at a little table. And I, I brought some pictures to Pat. And uh, I, I brought them with me today. Uh, but I said, Pat, these are PET scans of a Romanian orphan whose brain is impaired. And here's another PET scan of somebody's brain that's healthy. I said, I know... This is how my brain looked. And this is what's happened to my brain. It's, it's transitioned from impaired to healthy. And that, that process is replicable, Pat. We can scan people's brain and demonstrate that. And Pat leaned up on the table and said, Jeff, that's the mother load of research! And set out on this big project, which is still happening, but... Um, it's very exciting, the research that's being done. Sarah Ullman has done some fantastic research about the right prefrontal cortex and sex addicts. 
that are damaged like as if it were in gunshot survivors and head trauma survivors. The right prefrontal cortex is responsible for executive functioning. That's where people learn from mistakes and don't make the same mistakes again. In sex addicts, that right prefrontal cortex is almost always damaged and can be identified in neuropsych testing. So with the temporal lobes and the right prefrontal cortex messed up, I was, I was having a hard time functioning. But the second step to me is a measurable reality. God has restored me to sanity. And I'm very grateful for that. Very grateful to know my brain has changed. I can function again today. I'm not so impaired. And there's a whole lot more, but I guess I'll sit down. Thank you. Is that enough? Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, I'm Daryl Arnett, uh, a physician here in Nashville area, and uh, I'm um, board certified in internal medicine for the last 26 years, board certified in addiction medicine for the last, uh, I guess, about four years. been practicing addiction medicine for about eight and a half, and I'm just, uh, as a testimonial to uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff has taken on uh, so many friends of mine and uh, their their families, and, and uh, he's also a testament to my direction, and that is... Uh, it's not all about the addict. Uh, I am a member of this fellowship and a proud car-carrying uh, uh, member. And <laughs> went to treatment about eight and a half years ago and stayed for four months in treatment, uh, 16 hours a day with the bulldozer hitting me up the side of the head. And after about three months, I finally began to understand what the heck was going on. But uh, went to 300 hours of therapy after I got done with treatment, but only because I needed 300 hours of therapy. And it took about three and a half years to complete that. But uh, anyway, my testimonial is, is short, and that is that uh, I was a horrible uh, husband, and I was a worse father than I was a horrible husband, and I certainly was not a good friend because I had no clue what that was. But I'm happy to say now that uh, I believe I'm a very good husband and know what it takes to be a good husband and decide to do that on a daily basis. And I, don't, I do not think I'm a good um, father. I think I'm a great father. Not the best father out there. I don't want to be the best at anything, and thank goodness, anymore. But uh, I'm just uh, proud of, uh, of the kids I have. Um, my dad died of addiction. My brother died of addiction. My grandfather died of addiction. My great-grandfather died of addiction. And my father-in-law died of addiction. So as I say to, to my patients, if you get raised by a bunch of Looney Tunes, usually Looney Tune things will happen. So... Uh, Anyway, uh, I'm happy to say when I went to treatment, my two boys were 11 and 12, and they're now 20 and 21, and neither of them had the disease of addiction. So uh, by the grace of God, uh, so far, you know, it appears we've been able to break the chain of addiction in our family. Uh, the other thing I want to say about Jeff that means a lot to me, and that is that uh, he, he, um, he initially starts with the addict, but, but his, he works so much with uh, dealing with the relationships, the damage done in the, in the uh Families and the um, the friendships and the work environment and uh, there's so much more than just just dealing with the uh, with the individual and uh, we try to do the same thing in our practice in the Cool Springs area. Um, in regard to the disease of addiction, um, which I'm going to give you my opinion for whatever it's worth, there is no question it's the disease of addiction and that is a medical disease. 
And that helped me a lot uh, to recognize that uh, it meets the same criteria as it does for any other dependence disorder that appears in the DSM-4. TR, I I am not a board-certified psychiatrist, and and we have someone who is more qualified than me to speak about that book. However, uh, there are uh, criteria for dependence disorders, and clearly... uh, There's no question, at least in my life, that I met more than uh, three of the seven criteria necessary within 12 months in order to be classified as an addict. Um, It was amazing to me. I went to treatment number one. There was a a name for this disease for me because all I knew was I was mad crazy. But uh, I felt that they knew if there was a name for the disease and perhaps I had hope. Um, The uh, the DSM-4, you know, does not recognize, well, it does not recognize the disease of addiction as being a legitimate uh, psychiatric disorder. Um, I don't really think that matters to me personally. And the reason being is that uh, uh, many of us, including physicians, are testimonials that indeed uh, the uh, disease was alive and well. Um, certainly the biochemical evidence has been there and the, the neuroscience to back up those uh, figures also. So, uh, um Anyway, so I, I just that's just my uh, two cents worth on that. Um, I think also that the uh, the traumas involved are every bit the same as they are for any of the other addictions. In reality, I don't really s- separate out sex addiction, addiction or any of the process addictions from any of the substance disorder addictions. Uh, I don't personally don't see a difference. Uh, it is it is true, at least in my practice, that those who have had process addictions oftentimes have deeper traumas. And I have a testimonial of that, too. I didn't know we were brothers in the same family as far as the uh, traumas with Dad. But, uh, you know, I'm lying to beat the hell out of me, too, until he died in 87, a raging alcoholic. But, uh, you know, uh, let's see what else we've got here. As far as how we're faring in the, in the battle against the disease of addiction, um, I, I was a little bit disturbed when we've had conferences before because there didn't seem to be much of a medical approach to any of it. Um, and, and that it was, I understood the trauma base and the shame base. And I mean, I've attended many, many meetings, so I, you know, I needed all of that help uh, for those uh, issues and PTSD and OCD and all those other things, uh, you know, but the reality is it was very comforting to me to know that there was a medical reason for why I felt the way I felt, and that there were a lot of biochemical aberrations that I wasn't responsible for, and uh, it, it, it made me aware that it wasn't all about me, and it wasn't a moral decision. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, the predisposition was handed to me, and uh, of course, once I was aware of what, go, what, what happened and the traumas, and uh, I knew that there were there were answers for my problems. Um, all I had to do was be willing to do the work. And as as I was told a long time ago, if I was willing to spend half the time I did on my recovery as I did on my addiction, then uh, I was going to be just fine. Um, for Steve, I just want to uh, kudos to Steve. Uh, Steve and I uh, became accountability partners about eight years ago, and I've never heard this in a conference, uh, and I don't understand why it's not part of conferences, but uh, a little tool that I somehow, uh, God told me about, was uh, that I had a sponsor, and my sponsor has better things to do at this time than just to wait by the phone for me to give him a call. 
So uh, somehow I uh, got this idea, which I think had to be God-given, that uh, I needed three accountability partners. And so when I went to the meetings, I ran into three guys, and, and my, my buddies are Joe and Alan and Steve. And I loved what they said in the meetings, and they seemed to be a lot like me. So one day I took up the nerve to take a chance and get their phone numbers and and um, and ask if they if I could call them every once in a while. Well, we turned out to be best of friends, and uh, it's been eight years now of, of staying together, and, and and we have a spiritual relationship. And uh, I loved your your um, your uh, reading earlier, and and the bottom line is we we go uh, periodically out on uh, sort of, sort of spiritual retreats together. And uh, stay in touch via emails and, and via phone calls. So it's just nice to know that I have friends that I can uh, talk to uh, all the time. And, and, and as my story ends here, uh, what I did with those three friendships with three accountability partners is I would call one of them first thing in the morning. And then I would, um, um, uh, I would say on the phone, here's how I feel. Here's what I commit to do today. Um, and uh, by the way, how are you doing? Because life's not all about me. And then in the afternoon or early evening, I would call one of the other accountability partners and I would say, well, here's how I feel. Here's what I committed to do today. Here's what I actually did. Here's what I commit to do tonight. And by the way, how are you doing? Because life's not all about me. And then the next day, I would call one of the other accountability partners and do the same routine. And lastly, at the end of that day, I would call my sponsor and talk to him. I'm just saying is that I never wore anybody out in the relationships and the process, and I had a lot of support around me because my sponsor is not always available. But between my sponsor and my three accountability partners, I always have uh, uh, friends who are available. Thank you. Any of I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. Have uh, many of you seen Avatar? Yeah. Yes. Hey, yeah. Remember the scene where they find out that the brother is the brother, and he doesn't have a whole lot up here compared to his brother, who's was the real Avatar. And they said, well, that's not so bad because you don't know so much that we have to reteach you. <laughs> All that stuff. <laughs> All this knowledge I had from all my degrees were totally worthless. That's right. <laughs> All this great, sophisticated, scientific work, and they end up sending people to AA and SA, or other 12-step programs. <laughs> Cherry used to say, Jay? Yeah, used to say, if that's my AA sponsor, uh, he's been dead many years now, but he said, if they ever discovered a pill to cure his alcoholism, he would never take it. Because if he took it, he might think he didn't need AA anymore. And that his spiritual life was AA. So I have a wall full of paper. And that's all it is when it came to my disease. 
and when it comes to the disease of others. Because I treat people and I've known people and I'm uncomfortable uh, because my, for my own recovery, telling you all my deg- degrees. It's not about anonymity. I just am just a drunk and I need to be real sure I never forget it for me because I'm a sick man getting better. And so I need to remember for me and for people I treat that ultimately it comes down to a a kernel of an ingredient that I don't understand. Doesn't matter because I agree with what Jeff was saying, everyone's saying the damage, and you know, I keep it real simple. I got a screwed up brain. I mean, if it's not sex, it's food. If it's not but what's the beauty of this all? It's that it's all been written in the AA book. The scientists are merely finding what Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob were divinely given, the prophetic concepts. They talked about the survivor brain before it was discovered. It was discovered basically in the early 40s in Canada. The fight and flight concept. And they wrote about the fight and flight concept in the 1937. And how do we know that? Because of chapter 5, how it works. What does it talk about in chapter 5? talks about Resentment, fear, okay? So fight or flight, the anger, because in that special center in our brain and the limbic system is connected to, it's what they talk about. What's up there? The thirst center for drunks. Our thirst center is up there. The eating centers in that little tiny chip. So, eating disorders, sex. Now, what's in the chapter 5, it says, about resentment, fear, and sex. We're told, hey, something's wrong with us inside. Those three things are totally out of whack in our brains. And what's the solution? You know, I I recently heard someone was uh, talking about that they had a uh, procedure and they could not get true arousal anymore. And they thought, wow, this would be good for my sex addiction. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) We're still up there. And no matter what and I have an experience beyond my medical experience. I am a physician. I specialize in special part of uh, medicine. I'm also an addictionist. 
I'm a psychiatrist, you name it. I got it because my wife keeps saying I need another degree. (laughs) I hate taking exams. I hate them. I hate studying for the exams. Oh, Harvey, it will just take you two more years. (laughs) And then it was the addictionology ones. I became an addictionist. And then, out of nowhere, Nancy decided I need to be a medical review officer exam. So I did, had a t- took that one. <laughs> and um, now I'm working in a plasma bank, and I said, no, I'm not taking an <laughs> exam for that. But all kidding aside, it, I've been around so long in the program. And I've seen so much, and I've seen nothing work sometimes. No matter who does what. You know, nothing works sometimes. And sometimes it works like that. I've seen also that people do get better if they come around enough, even though things might not be working. I've seen the greatest treatment centers give it all they got and the person still doesn't make it. And I've seen me give it all I got and the person doesn't do it. So I've learned I don't understand this. And I'm going to say a very cruel thing that people don't like to hear. Some of this is statistics right now where we are for recovery. I think the rule of three applies. I think a third of everyone gets sober right from the beginning. I think a third of people keep relapsing and eventually get better. And then there's a third who just doesn't do well. Why? Because it's a real disease. It's a real disease and diseases you can't cure everybody. You could alleviate some of the problems. You could make them feel better. But some, it's tough. Now, why do I talk this way, especially here? Because it's very painful to watch people die in this program sometimes. And, so, and however, I feel it's very much, and I'll end on this note, that I feel it's very much like Two types of diseases. One is multiple sclerosis. I think addiction is very much like multiple sclerosis. That it's characterized by remissions and exacerbations. And that every time you have an exacerbation, and then it gets better for a while, you're left with a little more damage. And you get enough exacerbations. You end up in a wheelchair. And then you end up worse and worse, ultimately. Because it's a chronic progressive fatal disease. And then you have diabetes. Some people do well with a diet. Some people need a pill. Some people need insulin. Some people need an insulin pump. And then some people eventually will need pancreatic 
uh, transplants. Now, I'm the person who needed a brain transplant. I'm one of those people who are so messed up and so incurable and such a mess, and yet I have been sober for 25 and more years, 25 years and whatever months, 10 months, because it's an utter miracle. And who's in that third, whoever's in that third that can't get better, they still could do it. Somehow, I've seen it at AA, where people have been told that they, by their doctor, that if they leave the hospital and they have one more drink, they're going to die. And so what did they do? They went across the street from St. Thomas, old St. Thomas, to Ireland to have a drink to think over what the doctor said. (laughs) And there they were, ten years later in recovery, talking about this. Because God is involved in this. And somehow... And I don't understand it, and I try not figuring it out, and my certificates don't help me figure it out. What it helps me is to have build trust with a patient to be able to say, hey, you need to go to AA. (laughs) And then to say, well, maybe you could benefit from this pill we have so it helps you not crave so much but you still need to go to AA, so you'll be willing to take that pill. Or for me to be willing to say to someone, I think you're a sex addict by the way I am too, and if uh, when you go to a meeting, I need to find you another doctor because I can't treat you. If you go, hopefully you'll go to SA because I'm afraid it would affect my recovery. This I'll be hesitant to be as open for medical legal reasons if you're, we're both in the room and I'm sharing and it could affect my recovery, so I need to get you another doctor. And that's what I have to do. And on that note, I just want to say, I know there's help for people like us. And Carl Jung knew that. Carl Jung knew there was an answer. And... One day at a time, people find it or they don't. Thanks. (laughs) I've got a disease called 73 years old. (laughs) Y'all don't don't recognize it, but I'm moving swiftly. my professional uh, <laughs> deal. Uh, Who are you? Oh, I'm Burns Brady. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, and uh, I suppose about everything. Uh, I was a narcotics addict, too. And uh, Anyway, I, that's a, I don't have enough time to go through all of that. Uh, and But I will conclude uh, or deduce from what I need feel like I need to say is uh, uh, I don't have any doubt that we have a disease. And the very criteria that's being used for what's currently in the DSM literature, we do fit that. Uh, I understand some of the reluctance to deal with it. 
but it really shouldn't be that reluctant because we got a whole bunch of people that fit the diagnosis for alcohol dependency and alcohol abuse uh, that would fit into the criteria if they had the same sexual uh, uh, behavior that would fit into sexual abuse and sexual dependency. That doesn't mean that everybody who fits that diagnosis for alcoholism is an alcoholic. Uh, and quite frankly, what at least I've seen most of the scientists do is to try to avoid all the firestorm that's going to occur when what they come up with as a diagnosis or a mechanism of diagnosis presents more problems than it does a solution. That's why that there was a long attempt to take uh, addiction and alcoholism out of the DSM because it created a real firestorm when it was brought up. Because there were multiple opinions as to what those, as to how that played it out when you tried to, to give it a definition. Uh, so it is, so far, as far as I'm concerned, unconscionable that uh, sexual <coughs> addiction is not included in that full criteria of addiction of addictive diseases. Now, from the standpoint of how important it is for us to say or for me to feel, remember that I have a disease, first of all, that's what I learned in the textbook. The textbook, and those of you who heard me this morning, the textbook couldn't be clear. There were three things that Bill Wilson took Bob Smith. Number one, we have an addiction. Or number one, we have an illness or disease. And number three, that we've got to work with other alcoholics. The middle one was we have a a spiritual solution. And Dr. Bob knew that we had a spiritual solution. He just didn't know about the illness, and he didn't know about the working with other alcoholics. Uh, he probably had a much more deeply grounded spiritual solution than Bill had. And it was all still within the Oxford group, much stronger within that Oxford group, because the Oxford group was much stronger in, in, uh, in Akron than it was in New York. Even though the, the shoemaker had at the, at the, uh, uh, at his church, what's the name of the church? Uh, anyway, that, that was, that was the home office, uh, for the Oxford group at that time, but it was much stronger in Akron. Uh, and when Bill got to carrying around between 1934, when he got sober in December, and when he went out to Akron in, in May, uh, he was running around pulling drunks out of bars and everywhere else. We know the story. And he said, this isn't working. And Lois said, what do you mean? He said, nobody's getting sober. And she said, well, you're sober, but that's not why I'm telling the story. He goes back to Silkworth and said, why, why are these people not getting And he said, quit preaching. He said, tell them about the illness. And when we look at the seventh chapter, working with others, we're clearly, I am, clearly impacted with the message. The first thing you do is tell someone about their illness, which at that time was a physical allergy and a mental obsession. The mental obsession has withstood the challenge of time as to being exactly what is the problem that we use for the peculiar mental twist when we're looking for the relief that comes out of the allergy, which is today 70 to 90 percent genetically, uh, genetically programmed. Uh, and then my last thing that I told this morning is I remember when I was about two years, year and a half, two years sober, I said to my sponsor, I don't give a damn if I've got an illness. I don't give a damn if I've got a disease. Just teach me what i got to do not to drink. And he looked at me and he said, son, you better damn well remember you've got a disease. Or there'll be someday you'll be so spiritual you think you can take a drink. <laughs> and that the preceding of that being so spiritual is I don't need you that much. Or I need you but only partially to what I needed you before. 
or I decide that I'm so close to God that I really don't have to begin my day with the steps, live my day with the steps, and end my day with the steps. I have no doubt that we have a biological, psychological, and sociological illness with a spiritual solution. Psychological, biological, and social illness with a spiritual solution. The things that Jeff talked about uh, in, in the brain studies that Pat's doing his work on, most of those are are absolutely trauma-related. And we talk about more trauma in SA. We talk about more trauma in, in, uh, sec- in uh, eating disorders. We talk about the trauma and the brain abnormalities that we see. The most recent breakthrough, and if anybody wasn't there today, that we've seen with eating disorders in the past six months is an absolutely reduced, effective in, uh, uh, endogenous cannabinoid system. So satiety becomes an issue based on the inability for satiety. And when we're dealing with all of the trauma and certain areas of the brain that Jeff talked about where they're talking about uh, executive function, very similar to that is the idea of perception. And the latest studies on eating disorders is this same stroke-like picture in certain areas of the brain have to do with perception problems. Clancy's not that far off. Like him or hate him, he's not that far off about this being a disease of perception. But in eating disorders, they look in the mirror. They don't see what we see because the area of the brain that has to do with perception is screwed up. This has all been in the last year. There's no question that we have a disease. I'm, I, I'm praying with everything I can pray for that common sense prevails and we give this not only the dignity that it deserves. I agree without the spiritual solution, but I've already told you what my sponsor says. Damn it, remember you've got an illness. You are not going to be normal. You will never be normal. You can live in a normal fashion with normal people, but you've got a place that's called home. It's S.A. It's A.A. It's a place where the insanity becomes a normal part of the working mind. And that we've developed a whole system on how to deal with it. No question it's, a, it's an illness. No question it's very critical that we remember it's an illness. I know with the thousands of people that I've worked with, prisoners, street people, 32 years of working with people in A.A., and all points in between, uh, what I see repeatedly in these people is one day they decide they're normal. One day they decide they're normal. I'm dressed up and I'm wearing a red tie and I can stop and get some gasoline on the way home. And as far as that guy in that service station is concerned, I'm just as normal as rain. But you and I know I'm just as screwed up as any idiot that's ever standing at that thing today. <laughs> And I'll give you one story to tell you what I live with every day. And I think it screams with what the message is. I'm checking out at Kroger's about six months ago. I'm 73 years old with 32 years of recovery, and i got enough awards on my wall to map this wall. They've all been deserved. I've served well in God's army. And I have those awards as a result of what has happened to our society in Louisville as a result of my serving in God's army. So I'm going through as this adult, right? With a spiritual program for living. The little girl's 18 or 20 years old and she's checking me out. I say, honey, how's your day going? She doesn't say a word. I say, it must be really tough today. It's real crowded. Uh, how are you feeling? She doesn't say a word. 
I said, are you feeling bad today? She doesn't say a word. My next thought was, where is the frigging manager? I'll get her ass fired in about 15 seconds. And there on the flip of a 50 cent piece, she has me lock, stock, and barrel. She's leading me right out through the deal because she already knows that I was called white trash growing up. That I suffer from premature ejaculation. That I was called, that I had the caddy rather than the blonde country. She doesn't know this shit. But that's what it pulling everything out of me. All of a sudden, I'm down to this little boy and she's calling me white trash. I walk right up. Pause when agitated or doubtful, right? I walk around, uh, you know, cognitive stuff, count to five. But whatever it is, I go out in the car and I get my paper out of, out of the thing. I'm resentful at this little bitch behind the counter. <laughs> because she ignored me in the checkout line. This threatens my self-esteem, my ambition, my security. I'm right there looking at it. I mean, it's being nailed for me. And it's, were my selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened? All you had to do is say, Hi, doctor, you're wonderful. I hear you have all kinds of awards. I'm glad you're alive. You have made our world a better place to live in, right? <laughs> That's all she had to say. <laughs> is that so freaking hard? <laughs> So I picked up the phone and I called my sponsor and I go through the deal and he says, are you praying for her? Yeah. You think she's a sick person? No. Okay, but you're still praying for her. I'm still praying for her. Uh, Clayton, do you think I ought to go in and make my man? He said, for what? I said, for just the way I felt. He said, man, she has forgotten you. Walk in say, I'm sorry, little girl. I thought you were a piece of shit. He didn't recognize my gender. He said, uh-uh, I don't think so. And I'm, I'm back in there playing the game at the level of anybody in recovery because that's the only way I know how to live. You taught it to me, and praise God, you brought it home in time. You taught it to me, and that's the way to live. That's the spiritual solution. But if I forget, I've got a disease. Now, I grant you, I agree with many of the things that have been said. Self-knowledge won't do it, but that's not unique with me. That's right out of the big book. It tells us repeatedly, self-knowledge ain't going to get it done. So I can work the last nine action steps, and without the first three power steps, i got nothing. i got nothing. But with just the first three steps without the last nine, I ain't got much more. And I've lived for ten years in this program with just the first three steps. And as I said this morning, I was a lethal weapon for God. There were a lot of people that wanted my type of spirituality, not like they wanted syphilis. I mean, that's just about the same thing. Maybe a bad analogy in this group. Maybe that's what I'm saying. I apologize. Back to TB. That works better. Thank you all very much, and uh, thank you all for coming. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to answer some questions out of the Ask It basket. Anyone who um, uh, has uh, further questions can come up and drop them in the basket during our break. Please be back at uh, um, uh, yeah, just a little after 4 o'clock. We'll start. Thank <laughs> you.
I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.